Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, journalist, New York University professor, and bio member Pamela Newkirk. She's the author of the award-winning biography, Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga, published by Amistad in 2015. Newkirk's latest book is Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business, published by Bold Type Books in 2019. I asked Pamela why in Diversity, Inc. she chose to tackle such a broad topic. Because for all of my career, diversity has been this preoccupation in the workplace, um, both in my career as a daily journalist, and then I've been on the faculty at New York University for 26 years. And that entire time, we keep hearing about diversity, and yet the needle has barely moved. And then I started to think about the multi-billion dollar industry that has evolved around this idea of diversity, where you have diversity czars and consultants and books and blogs and conferences, and you have these like elaborate infrastructures built around diversity, and yet we don't have diversity. So I wanted to interrogate that tension between the rhetoric of diversity, the multi-billion dollar business that has grown around it, and the lack of diversity. Mm-hmm. And so because it is such a broad topic, how did you decide that you were going to break it down and really examine it? Right. So I focus on three realms of American life. I focus on corporate America for obvious reasons. It's the biggest employer. I looked at academia because for 50 years it's been sort of an issue that it's grappled with publicly, and Hollywood for similar reasons. You know, after the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders that was commissioned by President Johnson, it looked at those fields and other fields that had historically excluded African Americans and then, of course, other people of color. And I wanted to look at what had happened in those 50 years since the exclusion of African-Americans and others from those fields was highlighted, you know, on a national stage. Okay, so clearly the book is not a biography, but it has biographical elements Hmm. in terms of the profiles that you um, use of some people Mm -hmm. involved in this. So could you talk a little bit about how you found those folks that you focused on, and maybe just give one or two examples. Yeah, well, for each industry that I focused on, I wanted to look at the people who were at the forefront of the battle for diversity, the people who in some way made a significant contribution to the conversation. Um, One of the people was uh, Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, who as the president of the University of Michigan, had been named in two reverse discrimination lawsuits, and he became sort of the face of affirmative action in higher ed, the person who was like at the forefront of that battle. And it's something that he continued to 
engage uh, as the president of Columbia University. So he's, I mean, was an obvious person to to interview. Um, I also talked to Cyrus Mary, who is a civil rights attorney who had litigated two landmark discrimination lawsuits, one at Coca-Cola and one at Texaco, but there were many others. And he also, with uh, the late Johnny Cochran, helped devise the Rooney Rule for the NFL that required um, a diverse slate of candidates for coaches and front office jobs. So another one who was at the forefront of of the battle to diversify um, the workplace. And I mean, so many of the people I talked to, whether they were producers, directors in Hollywood, they are engaged in, in this issue in some way. How much time did you spend in research and development? I think it was about two years or two and a half years from conception to publication. Um, I saw it as a journalistic effort. I mean, while I did research, you know, I had to research the history. It's a contemporary book. It's looking at a contemporary issue. So because you did your research, you interviewed a lot of people, did you find that there were any um, places where you could see that there was some progress being made in terms of diversity? Yeah, I think the thing that was most counterintuitive that I found that the fields that are considered the most progressive are the least diverse, like the arts and entertainment and all of those fields that we see as progressive fields, magazines and, you know, art museums and all of these cultural kind of fields are the least diverse fields. The most diverse was corporate America. And I think it's because, first of all, corporate America has had more lawsuits and they they had greater infrastructures around diversity and inclusion, but also they hire more people. So there are more opportunities. So there's more diversity where you have more elite operations like newspapers, like broadcast units, they can be very, very particular. They focus more on who you know. It's They're very inside baseball, the insular operations, and that's where you have the least diversity. People hire who they know. They hire their friends. There's nepotism. The fields like um, higher ed and Hollywood are rife with nepotism. And as a result, you have less diversity. So someone might say, just to pay the devil's advocate, that if you look at newspapers, magazines, television, and even social media, there apparently is more diversity um, from an image perspective. Well, that's true. I mean, if and I think people are mostly dealing with symbolic diversity. They look at a few people in high places and say, what? What's the problem? But I looked at the metrics. So I looked at the percentage of people of color who are roughly 40% of the national population who say in tech, um, African-Americans hold like 2% of tech jobs at a company like Google. And it's the same at Facebook. Um, Latinos are a little better than that. So if you look at higher ed, African-Americans are 4% of full-time university and college professors. And that includes professors at historically black colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. Latinos are like 3%. So they're 31% of the national population. So we're talking about radical underrepresentation. We're not talking about anything that's even approaching proportional representation. So that's what I looked at, the metrics, not the symbolic... 
And after your intense examination of this issue, did you see any solutions to oh, yeah. make diversity oh. you know, more prevalent? Yeah. I mean, one solution is to stop doing what companies have done for the past three, four decades and it hasn't worked. <laughs> stop doing what you're doing. Um, you know, all of the anti-bias training and the climate surveys and the studies and the task forces, like all of this money that's going into initiatives that have proven to fail. And then there are these models that have been proven to be successful. Um, the case study that I did of Coca-Cola after the discrimination lawsuit, it put in place a system of accountability where they looked at the metrics across the company. They looked at who was hired, who was even interviewed for jobs, who was getting promoted, how much were people making holding the same jobs. They were able to detect patterns of bias and they were able to disrupt those patterns. And over five years, they changed the culture, the climate, and the composition of the workplace dramatically. But it took intention and commitment and vigilance and, you know, accountability. Someone had to answer for what was taking place in the workplace. And Coca-Cola is just one example, but do you see that happening, say, in the entertainment industry? No, I don't see it in the entertainment industry. I mean, we do know that after the Oscar So White campaign that shined a bright light on exclusion in Hollywood for two years in a row, none of the acting nominees were of color. Um, all of a sudden, you know, they started like, oh, we're going to add more voting members because I think at the time um, the people who voted was like 90% white. Um, but if you look behind the curtain at most of these industries, that's what it looks like. So they did begin to change it, and I think now it's up to 15% voting members of color. But we're still talking about radical underrepresentation. If you look behind the camera, who the directors are, who the writers are, I think writers of color is like 8% of screenwriters. Um, we're talking about radical, radical underrepresentation in Hollywood today. So people will point to the exceptions to the rule. They'll point to the Black Panther or to the huge successes. But if you look at the metrics... Black directors, black producers, writers, they're still really seriously underrepresented mm. in Hollywood. And I love your portrait of the woman who really started the Oscar. April so Rain. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. She was not in the entertainment industry. No, she's but a she, Washington lawyer. Yeah. yeah. And and it was just something she loved film and she watched the Oscars and she waited to see who the nominees were. And she just tweeted Oscars so white. And it became a global conversation about Hollywood's um, exclusionary practices. Mm -hmm. Well, race and the examination of race in different forms is kind of a through line in your books. I wanted to ask you about spectacle, okay. because that's clearly in the biographical right. genre. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about Oda Benga? So I'm a native New Yorker, and I had heard about Oda Benga, this young African who was exhibited in the Bronx Monkey House, first from my literary agent, she said, I think you should write about this. And I was like, why? It just sounded so dreadful. Mm. And there had already been a book about it that was written by the grandson of the man who 
brought Odebenga to the United States. And um, she insisted that she just thinks there's more there. And I said, okay, let me just go and like do a little research. I could just like, you know, shut her up basically. (laughs) (laughs) And so first I looked at the book, The Man in the Monkey House. And this book purported to be the story of friendship between Odebenga and the man who brought him to New York. And Odebenga somehow ends up in the zoo on display and I'm wondering like what kind of friendship <laughs> like what I don't have friend is it I don't have those kind of friends like how is this a story of friendship right. so the whole thing seems so preposterous to me and there were no footnotes there was no no way of substantiating anything everything was based on his grandfather's account of this friendship between the two of them So I said, let me go up to the archives at the Bronx Zoo and see if there's any way to substantiate what happened and how they were friends and, like, are there letters? So what I found in the zoo archives just so blew me away because not only was Odebenga not complicit in his captivity, he had resisted captivity, Mm. and there was a daily accounting of what was going on and how he was trying to get out of this horrendous situation. And then I started going to other archives around the country, and what I discovered is that not only was Samuel Werner not his friend, but he had gone to the Congo heavily armed to go hunting for so-called pygmies, these diminutive people from the Central African forest, to exhibit first in the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And so the details of, you know, what I found in the letters and in newspaper accounts and magazine accounts, his own um, biographical notes that he would write about what was going on at the time. No, Samuel Berner showed just the depravity of what they had done to these people and how the whole thing had then been romanticized, sanitized, where even the Bronx Zoo, in its own telling of what happened, said that Odebenga wasn't displayed at the zoo. He worked for the zoo. And that one day when he went into the cage to help with the monkeys, people wanted to know who he was, so they put a sign out. It was like they concocted this like whole elaborate fiction around something that in real time was being written about every day by newspapers, not just in this country, around the world. This was an international sensation that the Bronx Zoo had in its bulletin. It wrote about it as an exhibit. It bragged about it as an exhibit. Every day, the director of the Bronx Zoo would meet with reporters and talk. I mean, it was a fact that he was exhibited in the Bronx Zoo that attendance had doubled and tripled while he was there. Mm. And it was a national scandal that they managed over a hundred years to rewrite and turn into something totally different. So it turned out to be uh, more than anything, a counter narrative that reinserted um, Odebenga into the story in a way that recognized his humanity, his dignity, um, Odebenga did not leave behind any papers, but I was able to find him in the archives. I was able to find him in, you know, ship passenger records. I found him in 
letters that other people sent about him to their parents. Um, there was an anthropologist who was just happened to be in, in the Congo the same time that Werner was there. And he was recording accounts of Odubanga as intelligent, as uh, just wise, as courageous. Like there were all of these accounts about him by people who just happened to meet him, observe him, and um, it helped flesh out you know, what kind of person he was. Yeah, because I, I was just thinking that you had all of this great material from archives, like, say, the zoo and elsewhere. And, of course, newspaper and right. magazine articles. Right. But his voice, um, right. how did you get to his voice since he didn't write, right? right? And did he end up going back to the Congo? No, he wanted to. He en- His life ended in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he was taken in by the African-American community. So there were enough accounts of him by people who knew him. In fact, one of the people who knew him was a poet in Virginia whose family had taken him in. So she was a young child, but she remembered him. And she had written a book-length uh, poem about him, which is how my agent learned about Uh, his story. Yeah. Yeah. And how long was he on display in the zoo? Um, In all, it was a little over a month. That's too long. Well, it would have been longer, but the uh, African-American ministers uh, fought and it became a scandal. And then they finally let him go. Mm. That examination or that profile of Oda Benga um, must have been difficult to write, not just because oh, it was heart heart wrenching, yeah, all of the details, mm-hmm. but also what did that do to his psyche? He committed suicide, so that tells you a lot about what it did to his psyche. I mean, he ended his life. Um, he was unable to go back to the Congo, which is where he wanted to go. He wanted to go home. And, um, I mean, I'm sure it destroyed him. I mean, imagine. Mm, you know? I can't. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. He was in a cage with an orangutan. So I guess mm. the orangutan must have been domesticated. That's the only way I can imagine that he would have survived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of response did you get to the book? Well, it got quite a response. Um, the Bronx who never responded to any press inquiries. In fact, they closed the monkey house permanently to the public, uh, so you can't even see anymore where he was kept. Now the Bronx Zoo doesn't encage animals like that. They they have more open spaces, but the buildings and everything were open to the public, and now they closed it mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. So they've, they, it's just they've had no response to it. Um, but... It got a lot of attention across the country. It won the NAACP Image Award uh, for Best Book, and it won a couple of other prizes, but it it got attention. Mm -hmm. And what would you say um, as advice to any um, aspiring writer who wants to take on a subject like this where there may be a lot of documentation about a particular person, Mm -hmm. but you don't have that person's account of themselves. Look for them in the in other people's papers. You look for them. I mean, it's not. It's harder, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. What you have to do with early figures of American history when you're writing about African American, Native American people, we often find, you know, the smoking gun. I found it in the hands of the people who had the gun. Who, <laughs> like they, they were 
incriminating themselves in their own letters and diaries. They were writing about people who they didn't care about. So they could just honestly say uh, what was going on at a time when black people had no rights. So that's how you do it. You go to where you will find honest, uncensored accounts. Because the public and private are different. What they said publicly was totally different from what they said in their own letters, in their own journals, and you interrogate that tension. Mm-hmm. And the last question is just as a, a black person, an African-American yourself, how do you deal with such gut-wrenching information, mm-hmm. either about Odebenga and how, what he was put through, or this whole question about diversity right. or the lack thereof? Well, look. As African-Americans, what we go through every day. I mean, (laughs) if we're not prepared to do this kind of work, no one is. (laughs) You know, it's the cards we were dealt. Mm -hmm. You know, we we have a really challenging history and we have a challenging current reality. So if you're going to tell those stories, you have to face tough material. That was author Pamela Newkirk talking about her biography, Spectacle. The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga, published by Amistad in 2015. Newkirk's latest book, Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion-Dollar Business, was published by Bold Type Books in October 2019. This interview was recorded in November of this year in Washington, D.C. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>